You're listening to Asbury University's Chapel Podcast, recorded live from our campus in Wilmore, Kentucky. Asbury's Chapel Service hosts speakers from around the world to inspire academic excellence and spiritual vitality. We hope you enjoy today's message. Well, good morning, Asbury University. It is my delight to make the long journey today, walking right across the street. That chapel over there with the strange man holding up a feather, that's my office, my home. And so I look over here at you many days, and so I'm thankful to come and join you for worship today. Thanks for the invitation. Well, in schools like we inhabit right now, it is very common to look forward a lot, isn't it? What are you going to be? What are you studying for? Where might you live? Who might you marry? What might your life be like one day? I think it's important sometimes to look back too. Where did you come from? Where did you begin? Maybe who will you be someday, but where did you start? I think it's interesting to ask questions, even of your leaders and teachers and mentors about where they started. What was their first job before they reached this pinnacle of education in which they now work? You know, is there anybody here working among you who maybe even some of your administration or leaders, the chairs of departments who worked in retail stores or in childcare services, Is there someone at the top of the food chain here who once worked in waste management or pizza delivery or at the now extinct video rental stores? Dr. Sarah Baldwin, I'm looking at you. And how many people here who you look up to for speaking so fluently in French or German or Greek or Hebrew once spoke those important and holy words so fluently? Would you like fries with that? Ask some questions of your leaders, your teachers. Where did you start? What was your first job? Not your last, but your first. The first job I ever held was in the medical community. I have a biology degree from my undergraduate years. And so I started out even in high school and before college working in a medical office. And the only thing I was qualified to be at that time was something called a health aide or a medical assistant. And one of my jobs was to go out into the waiting room and to call people's names, hoping I didn't mispronounce them, to invite them back in the office, to step on a scale, to take their temperature and their blood pressure and then to ask them some questions. You could probably name these questions for me. You've been through this intake process before, but I don't know if you knew what it was called. It's called an anamnesis, an anamnesis. I think we have a slide with that word on it, just so you can feast on it with your eyes, what an anamnesis looks like. It's those questions that are asked when you come back. What brings you in today? How are you feeling? Where does it hurt? How long have you felt this way? An anamnesis includes not only the immediate symptoms that you're feeling, but also your medical history, your family history, any allergies that you have, also questions about alcohol and drug use and sexual partners. You're faced with these questions every time you enter a doctor's office. That was my job. My job was to ask questions and listen and write things down in an anamnesis. And inevitably it would turn out sounding something like this. The patient is a 48 year old Hispanic male. Arthritis is strong in his family history and there's autoimmune diseases presenting. He has normal blood pressure and temperature, but after an episode of lightheadedness and muscle weakness, he came in this morning. Patient began experiencing symptoms four months ago, and at that time he experienced fatigue and joint pain in hands and knees and was diagnosed with rheumatoid arthritis. 
He was given a short course of corticosteroids that alleviated his symptoms, started on methotrexate, but felt the medications had negative effects and stopped taking them. And for the past two months, this patient has been experiencing worsening symptoms. He has been experiencing progressively worsening headaches accompanied by lightheadedness, light and sound sensitivity, nausea, vomiting. He reports no loss of consciousness associated, no convulsions, no change of vision. But when the headaches began two months ago, they would last about half the day and occur approximately once per week. Then they increased in frequency and duration. He reports he is unable to eat or sleep when the headaches come on. Concurrently, the patient is experiencing worsening joint pain and the pain is constant, accompanied by swollen and hot joints, unrelieved by medication. Also in the last two months, he's experienced dry mouth that makes swallowing food difficult and all of the symptoms make working impossible. Every anamnesis is different. And by the way, that's a tiny paragraph of one that would have lasted many pages. Every anamnesis is different. And everyone sounds a little bit like a puzzle to be solved, right? What, what is wrong with this person and how do we fix it? Like a challenge that we're trying to meet. But it's also important to remember that every anamnesis is actually a person. There's a person behind those symptoms. They're not disembodied. This is a, a living soul whose experience is very personal to them. Did you hear it? Unable to eat, sleep, work. Those are just tiny clues of what it must be like to live in this body, to tell this story, this anamnesis. And anamnesis is actually a Greek word. It means a calling to mind, a remembrance. It's basically a calling to remember a story. And in this case, it's the story of a body. And although when it was my job to collect the anamnesis, when I was around your age, actually, I was not yet in ministry, let me tell you that it felt like holy work to sit and listen and ask questions, to be the one that person would tell very intimate stories to. Can you imagine anything more intimate than your experience in your own body? And telling about those experiences to a complete stranger with the hope that they can help you fix what's going on. Those stories are holy stories, the stories of our bodies. And every story of healing also has within it some history of disease and pain. And every story of disease and pain has within it the seeds of healing that might yet occur. And so I would like to think, looking back years ago on that first job, that even just the listening was part of the healing. Even just believing someone, listening to them tell the story of their body and nodding my head and writing on paper and delivering that news to a doctor who might come and help, that that itself was part of that person's healing journey. That was my hope anyway. And I'm old enough that I remember back when I had this job, we actually had paper charts where I worked. When we said your chart, it was paper. All these papers were gathered up and punched with hole punches and brads and put in a manila folder. And that was your chart. It had your name and your birthday on it. And it contained all of the patient's history and subsequent diagnoses and treatments. And some patients had charts so thick, they had so much history, so much pain, so many treatments that we ran out of room in one manila folder. And we had to open a second one, sometimes a third. The papers just kept overflowing into these charts that we would place in a storeroom on a shelf. And this was especially true of patients who came back to us again and again. Chronic illnesses 
struggles with disease, things that they needed our help with, not just once, but many, many times. So many of those stories were more than one chart could hold. And I continued on that path in medicine until the year I turned 19 or 20. I was in the middle of college at a Christian liberal arts school, gung-ho for my biology pre-med degree, and God started tapping me on the shoulder. When I didn't listen, the taps got a little harder, a little more obvious. Eventually, I would say God had to hit me upside the head a little bit with the news that I was called to be a different kind of healer. I was connecting the dots, and they didn't end up at medicine anymore. They ended in ministry. So I began asking different questions, talking to different people about what that might mean. And so a couple of years later, I found myself, of all places, in Wilmore, Kentucky, at Asbury Theological Seminary, sitting in a classroom where a professor recounted not the parts of a body, but the parts of the Eucharist, communion, the different steps of the liturgy that were used. We were being taught as future pastors what we needed to do to bless this holy meal on the table. And the steps for that were written on the board in front of us, were um, projected actually. And they began reading these words, these mysterious sort of magical words, this list of words that went into the parts of Holy Communion, they were words like this, confession, absolution, sursum corda, sanctus, anamnesis, mysterion, epiclesis, fraction, distribution, benediction. And I, I was sort of in awe of those words, right? They almost sound like Harry Potter words, to tell you the truth. I mean, they're, they're so mysterious. They're Latin and Greek, and you have to really delve into them to know what they mean. But if you can imagine, one of them especially caught my attention right there in the middle of words that were supposed to be about something holy, liturgical, something in the church was a word I knew. It was the word anamnesis. What was it doing in seminary? It turns out that anamnesis is the story of the body. And so in the midst of serving Holy Communion, of blessing it and handing it to people, there's a time where the story of Christ's body is told where we tell the story of what Jesus did in his life and his ministry, his death and his resurrection. We say things like, on the night he was betrayed and given up for us, he took bread and broke it and gave it to his disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body given for you. This is an anamnesis. It's the story of a body. And I would just like to take a minute and say, isn't that crazy? The same word used in medicine and ministry, both as the story of a body. I feel sort of like pausing and sending a message to my dad, who did not really approve when I made this transition from medicine to ministry. He told me I was wasting my undergrad degree, never wasted, by the way, friends, and wasting a life that I might have spent, you know, in a potential career climbing a ladder in medicine to go into ministry. And when it turns out, actually, they're the same thing, really. I mean, that's what anamnesis tells me. Well, minus the earning potential, they're similar. Anamnesis is that part of the communion where we tell the story of the body that's before us and where we gathered, partake, and enter into that journey. We don't just tell it like it's the past. We enter into it in the present. It's a holy history of the way Christ came to live and die and rise again for us. It's an anamnesis of love. In Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, he says something that I think is a little shocking about bodies. 
It's found in chapter 12, which if you're counting is the chapter right before that kind of famous love chapter, love is patient and kind. Before we get to that, we have to talk about who's loving, what's loving. And so Paul begins to use the metaphor of a body in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, beginning with verse 12. Just as the body, though one has many parts, but all of its many parts form one body, so it is with Christ. For we are all baptized by one spirit, so to form one body. Whether Jews or Gentiles, slave or free, we were all given one spirit to drink. Even so, the body is not made up of one part, but of many. And then he goes on to say something that I think seems a little like a skit to me. I mean, I can almost picture it with sock puppets. Now, if the foot should say, well, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body. It would not, for that reason, stop being part of the body. If the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body. It would not, for that reason, stop being part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But in fact, God has placed the parts of the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. If they were all one part, where would the body be? But as it is, there are many parts and one body. And then skipping down to verse 26, he says this, if one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. And then, shocking news, I think. Now you, you friends, are the body of Christ. And each one of you is a part of it. The body of Christ. Just stop there for a minute. I cannot think of a more intimate thing for Christ to call us than his own body. Imagine how personal you feel about your body. It's the thing that gives you the gateway to connect with the world around you, both for input and output. Our bodies are responsible for receiving through our senses everything around us. Through it, you have the taste of a bright summer strawberry, the feel of a warm weighted blanket. Those are messages your body allows you to enjoy. Through it, you communicate with the world. Someone moves their hand over a piano and a song appears. An idea in their head becomes something other bodies can hear. A body can communicate and move, whether it's a reflex tapped on the knee, whether it's someone running cross country. Your mind makes your will known to the world through your body. And so here's Christ, here he is, you, you are my body. Isn't that amazing? Just stop for a minute. You are the way I long to physically experience and communicate to the world. I want to make my will, my impulses, my desires enacted in this world through you. I want to receive the joy of the world I created. When you receive that joy, when your heart is broken because of injustice in the world, it's my heart breaking through you, but you get to feel it. When my heart is bursting with joy at this good world, I made the people in it, the relationships you have. That's me expressing things through you. It's shocking to me that this very intimate of names, body, is what he gives to us. You know, back in the doctor's office where I worked in the storeroom full of medical charts, I mentioned that there were some that were short, but some so long they overflowed into multiple, multiple folders. Imagine how thick a chart would be for a 100-year-old patient 
who had regular medical checkups. Imagine how thick a chart would be for a patient that was as old as a thousand years. What if the patient was 2,000 years old? Just imagine the anamnesis. The patient is a 2,000-year-old body who presents with both acute pain, rampant disease, but also a remarkable capacity for healing and resistance. She goes by the name Church. She's been through multiple cancers, treatments, near-death, actual death experiences, and multiple resurrections. Her greatest scars have names like Crusades, her silence through the Holocaust, her complicities to slavery and the injustice around her. Some of these diseases have been so disfiguring. It's almost like we don't recognize her at all. Sometimes it seems like she's in a coma or sleeping or on life support, but generally she pops up again in places we least expect her. She's been through so many treatments and recoveries, so many regenerations stirring from the point of death. Without her, our laws would have no foundation. We, we wouldn't understand the depths of compassion through the things that she has built. Christ's will through her hands, hospitals and schools and missions. Through her diseases have been cured, orphans taken in and raised, widows loved well. Countless lonely people have in her found a family as they are added in and remembered as members of her body. In each new generation, her cells regenerate. They rise up and her body finds new ways of expression. But because this body is so diverse in its expressions, it's almost hard to recognize her sometimes. Presenting her physical characteristics in an anamnesis is especially challenging. What exactly is her height, her weight, her mass? Is her temperature hot or cold or lukewarm? Is her heartbeat racing or slowed down to a flat line? All of these are indeterminate symptoms. Does she go by the name Mount Zion Church down Harrodsburg Road on the way to Shaker Village? A church up on a hill, so small, so old, they have no indoor plumbing, just an outhouse for people to use. Every few years, they raise the money to get plumbed into the church to bring in place for children to go to the bathroom. But every few years when that money is raised, the people say again, no, we don't need that. Let's send that money to the mission field. Or does she go by the name Southland Christian Church, ironically on the same road, Harrodsburg Road, a body of thousands of cells singing to electric guitar and drums, a cell group for every demographic imaginable, multiplying mission and outreach as fast as anyone can think of it. Is she the church in Nigeria lifting praises, the church in South Korea praying at dawn, the church in the Pacific Islands dancing in praise? Is she the one gathered under trees or in cathedrals, auditoriums, chapels, or in schools or homes? Is she persecuted or is she free? Is she in schism or unity? Is she traditional or contemporary? And what tradition? And contemporary to what era? It's hard to say what can go into her chart, her history, her anamnesis. And one of the problems is that when we name her, when I say the word church to you, it is immediately personal, whether that's a good feeling or a difficult one or a mix of them. When we hear a choir sing, Jesus loves me, this I know, we're transported to memories that are so early we can't even name them for many of us. For some of us, it's simply an absence. 
we're still figuring her out. My story with her goes all the way back when I was four years old to a red brick church on the south side of Houston, Texas, located just across the street from our county courthouse. It was such a loving group of people that welcomed my mom and I in when I was four years old. And it was just the two of us. My parents divorced before I was a year old. And so just the two of us was kind of hard for a while. And so, and I think in a great decision, my mom found a church. And she began singing in the choir, which meant, since I couldn't sit in the choir loft as a four-year-old, that I sat out by myself. Can you imagine leaving a four-year-old sitting alone in church? Only I never sat alone in church. I sat with a different family each week, squished between parents and siblings, nestled up next to grandparents, my head leaning on their shoulder, falling asleep in just about every sermon for years and years. And I think it's probably God's sense of humor that he made me end up being a preacher because I fell asleep in sermons so often. My life has changed because those people loved me well. The white blood cells of the body rushed to a place of need and surrounded me. And because of it, I don't have some of the challenges I think I would without the church. Later, when I began working for churches as a youth minister and a pastor, my eyes were open to the underbelly that I did not want to see. How the sausage is made, people will say. And I began to say things like, the people in this church are weird. And then the next church I went to, it turned out they were weird too. And then I figured out, guess what? It's just the church. We're a magnet for weird people because that's where people are loved well. When a physical body encounters an illness or a pathogen, it develops antibodies that are specifically targeted, specifically shaped to take down those challenges the next time that pathogen is introduced. It's the reason that I won't have chicken pox again because my body still carries the antibodies it made when I was nine. And one of the miraculous things about being part of a body that's existed over 2,000 years is that there is nothing we can experience today that the church hasn't already seen at least once. And so scripture gives us this kind of inoculation against that individual feeling that we're all alone. The Psalms give us a booster of lament and praise and repentance and joy. Church history will tell us that people like Dietrich Bonhoeffer have stood up to nationalism before and taken it down with their obedience even as they experience the same death and resurrection as Christ. So perhaps when we experience difficult things in the church today, we need to look not just to the last one year or five years or 10, not even just to the last 100 to see what strength there might be to counteract it. And it's a good thing, friends, because it's a difficult season for the church. Even in the last two weeks, there was the revelation of yet another leader going down accused of sexual immorality and abuse at the head of an organization. The news is especially painful at the seminary right now because many of our students are connected to the International House of Prayer. Some of them came from there and it's their founder that's been accused. When they hurt, we hurt. When that story is personal and painful, it hurts all of us in the church. And shortly after that news came out, a preacher stood before a group of people talking about that scandal and used the story of Lot's wife to tell people they shouldn't turn back and look at what was going on in the past, not to turn over their shoulder, just look forward and press forward. And whatever the intention of that sermon was, what people heard was, don't listen to victims, don't read the news, just keep praying and praising and pushing forward. Whatever the intention was, that sermon produced more pain than it relieved. And I would say to you, friends, that the telling of the story of pain is always part of the healing. 
The honesty about the pain in the body is part of what makes us whole, and we cannot avoid it. We cannot move past things that have not been healed until they are named, until the body rushes with white blood cells and platelets to the scene and begins to offer grace, to listen well to a hurtful story within the body is to love it towards healing. But a Band-Aid on a raging infection has never been something that was good. When I talk to seminary students across the street about the pain in the church, all of us sometimes want to pull away. Why go to that thing called church? It's been hurtful to me or people I've cared about. They want to pull away and do this thing called just Jesus and me. One of them said to me last week, just Jesus and me and a few good friends. That's all I need. And then we'll find a few more friends and then we'll win some other friends to Christ. And I said, oh, got to stop you there. Now you've got church. That's what we do each generation. This is your job. We reinvent, we rise again, but we always call on the body because amputation has never gone well for the limb. We stay connected, we ask questions, we tell hard stories of pain, and we ask for the white blood cells to rush again where it's needed. Because there's no such thing as a single-celled Christian, no such thing as a single-celled church. And healthy cell groups and networks and denominations and churches are the only things that heal from the unhealthy ones. When my kids were little, <laughs> tiny, we would do bath time each night, and it almost began an anamnesis of the parts of their wounds on their body. Because little kids, I don't know if you remember this, they get hurt a lot. They skin their knees all the time. Their, their elbows are never whole. They have bruises and bumps on their foreheads. And so every night was almost an anamnesis in the, in the bathtub. Mommy, let me show you. Let me tell you. Where did that bruise come from? Well, here's a story. There were stories upon stories. And then after a couple of nights, you know, the, the knee, it would scab over. And, and then the next day, the scab was smaller and smaller, and then it, it disappeared. And sometimes they would go to look for it, and they would say to me, in awe, where did it go? What happened? And because I'm just as obsessed with medicine as I am with ministry, I told them. I mean, who tells a two-year-old about white blood cells and platelets and leukocytes and why their bruises and scars go away? I do, evidently, I do. I would tell them, God made your body to heal. He actually made these things within it that would rush and help and look at it, look at it. And after a while, they just, they stopped asking because I talked too long when they asked. And after a while, they would just point to the knee where the scab used to be, and they would say, look, Mommy, God is healing me. God made my body to heal. May it be so for your generation and the next and the next and the next. Let's pray. Almighty God, thank you for making us part of a body. Thank you, Lord, that we can be honest about hurt and pain and difficulty. But Lord, thank you that you made us to heal and that those resources are there and true and good. And thank you that you've never left us alone, never left us a limb dangling out there on our own. So God, send the goodness through your body into this generation. Don't let us turn away from the hard things, but help us to tell an honest story of the body and let healing begin again. In your name we pray, Jesus, as your body, to your body. Amen.